Overcoming Deficits 3. A Clear Conscience. 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, New International Version. Love comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The conscience is the soul as distinguishing between what is morally good and bad, prompting to do the former and shun the latter, commending one, condemning the other. Strong's Concordance Lexicon G4893. Syndesis. Simply put, it is the means by which we hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Romans 12, verse 9, New International Version. A good conscience, then, is another way of describing a clear conscience. It is a conscience at peace because the believer is persistent about doing good and consistent about avoiding evil. Before we came to the Lord, we chose the evil and hated the good because evil pleasure provided temporary relief from the wounded spirit. Now, even after salvation, many believers continue practicing sin for temporary relief. But for those of us who have turned to the Lord from sin, we recognize that victory over our deficits is only achievable if the Holy Spirit purges our consciences. Then we can choose the good and reject the evil. Hebrews 9 verses 13 through 14 says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and of the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What are the dead works that pollute our consciences? Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21, New International Version tells us, Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. These sins were the coping mechanisms we turned to out of our deficit, clouding our ability to judge between good and evil. Once we finished wearying ourselves committing iniquity, Jeremiah 9 verse 5, it became evident that only Christ can satisfy our need for love. In John 6 verse 35, Yeshua says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth in me shall never thirst. If Christ is sufficient for our need, why does the deficit remain? The deficit continues because there are areas in our lives that we do not believe Christ can satisfy. As a result, we keep turning to sin, which further pollutes our consciences, with dopamine reinforcing our will to sin and pollute. There is a great danger for believers who do not maintain a clear conscience, and it is not just the inability to love. The great danger is the three-stage spiritual decline that ultimately destroys the believer without them even perceiving it. In the following explanation of the three stages, we will notice how the mark of all three is a disregard for the Holy Spirit and insensitivity to sin. Stage 1. Titus 1, verse 15. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work 
reprobate. When a believer does not make a practice of clearing their conscience, the first thing they become is a hypocrite or actor. They attend church service on Sundays and Bible study on Wednesday nights because they want to maintain their reputation for being a faithful brother or sister. However, by them studying the Word of God and not taking action against the sin in their conscience, they set themselves in agreement with sin. James 4, verse 17, and Romans 3, verse 20 state, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, agreement with the word is not enough. Yahweh demands that we have the reality of the word living in our hearts by the working of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 2, verse 13. As David says in Psalm 51, verse 6, New American Standard Bible, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Anything outside of reality is hypocrisy. Why? For the reason that anything we pretend to be on the outside that is not true of us on the inside is hypocrisy. As Christ said of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verses 27 through 28, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Stage 2, 1 Timothy 1, verses 18-19 through 19. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. After a believer participates in sin for long enough, the Holy Spirit's warning to their conscience no longer troubles them. Their love of sin has given them resolve to disregard their conscience entirely. At this stage, they are not making mistakes, but are brazenly sinning in their rejection of God. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Paul describes a believer in this state as being reprobate. He writes, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Yeshua Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? There is much speculation among believers as to what the term reprobate means and to whom it applies. But according to this verse, it is a believer in Christ who lives sinfully as though Christ were not living in them. It suggests that the believer's heart has become so hardened by sin that even Christ living in them does not restrain their evil, incurring rejection from God. The first appearance of the term is in Jeremiah 6, verses 28 through 30, and is in agreement with our assessment since it is used to describe Israel in the same light. Jeremiah writes, They are all grievous revolters, walking with slanders. They are brass and iron. They are all corruptors. The bellows are burned. The lead is consumed of the fire. The founder melteth in vain, for the wicked are not plucked away. Reprobate silver shall men call them, because the Lord hath rejected them.
Reprobation is the fate of everyone who is comfortable with the sin the Holy Spirit is crying out against in their conscience. Stage 3, 1 Timothy 4, verses 1-2 through Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. After enough time has elapsed of a believer ignoring the Holy Spirit's voice in their conscience, ignoring the word of God they have read on their own, and ignoring the word they hear on Sunday and Wednesday services, the final collapse of the believer has come. They have now reached the point where they cannot hear from the Holy Spirit as they have seared their conscience. Again, 1 Timothy 4 verses 1-2 through states, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Once their ears become deaf to the Holy Spirit, they become open to demon spirits who will take them captive to do their will. 2 Timothy 2, verses 24-26 How? Sin always creates the right habitat for demons. Christ says in Matthew 24, verse 28, New International Version, Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. The carcass is a picture of the believer who lives in sin. The mind of sinful man is death, Romans 8, verse 6, New International Version. And the vultures are a picture of the demons who prey on them. These believers will still read the Bible, but their doctrine will be inspired by demons who will give them a counterfeit gospel that justifies their living in sin. In this way, they will feel affirmation for their sin and teach other carnal Christians the doctrine so they too will succumb to the deception. Not attending to the purification of the conscience is the origin of all Christian cult doctrine in the world. The doctrines of follow Christ, live for self, the health-wealth gospel, the ecumenical movement, Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, House of Prayer for All Nations, Christian Science, and etc., all began with men and women who never addressed the sin in their conscience and so fell prey to deception. So how do we clear our consciences and keep them clear? We will review four examples of godly men and women who maintained a clear conscience before God so we can imitate them. Example 1. Paul the Apostle, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in this world, and more abundantly to you, Word. To have a clear conscience, we must first devote ourselves to living a life of simple obedience to God out of a sincere belief that His commands are best for us. Bitter envying and strife, James 3 verses 14 through 16, is fleshly wisdom that comes from believers seeking relevance and a name for themselves in the church. Instead, we must love by the grace of God, which gives us victory over sin. Romans 6, verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Paul continues this thought in Titus 2, verses 11 through 12, saying, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Yeshua Christ, who gave himself for us, 
that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Example 2. Joseph. Genesis 39, verses 7 through 12. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused. And it came to pass as she spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. Keeping a clear conscience is a day-by-day process. We must be on our spiritual guard daily because we face temptation daily. We can all be proactive in not falling into temptation by removing from our lives the people, places, and things that lead us into sin. Though we are always to be on our guard, there are three sins the Bible commands us to flee from as we cannot defend ourselves against them. The first is sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 says, Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Fornication is a sin against the body because it is prostitution. It is using our bodies for the personal gain of sexual pleasure with multiple partners, uniting our spirits with theirs and then breaking it off. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 16 through 17 says, What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh, but he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. God created mankind to have one marital partner for life. Genesis 2, verse 24. Just as he created our spirits to be in unity with his spirit for life. When this does not happen, as is the case in harlotry, the terrible consequence is the destruction of the human spirit. Leviticus 21 verses 14 through 15, speaks to this effect when prescribing the marital boundaries of the priest, saying, An harlot shall he not take, but he shall take a virgin of his own people to wife. Neither shall he profane his seed among his people, for I the Lord do sanctify him. One of the definitions of the word profane is to wound fatally, bore through, pierce. Strong's Concordance Lexicon, H2490. Halal. The spiritual application of this verse is that the fruit of harlotry, after the act is finished, is a fatally wounded spirit. The second sin we are to flee from is idolatry, which is anything that estranges us from God. Ezekiel 14, verses 1 through 7. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 through 14 says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Notice how Paul pairs temptation with idolatry. After speaking on temptation, he warns them to flee from idolatry. How are the two related? Idolatry separates us from God because it exalts self-will over God's will. Self-willed behavior is idolatry. Hence, the two are related because a man cannot be tempted by something he does not have a will to do. The real temptation of doing our will and committing idolatry is why Christ's statement about his life and purpose in John 6 verse 38 is so powerful. 
Yeshua says, For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Christ lets us know in this verse that he had a will of his own, but he denied it to obey the will of his Father, keeping him from idolatry. The last sin the Lord commands us to flee from is the love of money. 1 Timothy 6, verses 10-11 through 11. Many Christians mistakenly believe that the two masters men can choose from are God and Satan. However, the only two legitimate masters are God and money. Matthew 6, verse 24. What is the sign that a believer loves money? Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10 tells us, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. The sign that a believer loves money is that they are never content with having their basic needs met. They never have enough money, and they never have enough of what money can buy. But in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6-9, through 9, New International Version, Paul commands us to be content with food and clothing. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. What is the origin of our discontent? A lust to become rich. We know this because immediately after Paul's command to be content, he describes the downfall of those who want to be rich. This clear contrast tells us that when we habitually make purchases outside of what we need, our motive is to get rich. Our insatiableness is a trap of the devil because it places us on an endless quest to seek satisfaction for material goods that can never satisfy. Moreover, for the believer who loves money, what they purchase is only good for them to look at until they want to look at something else. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 11. This continuous lust to look at new things is at the root of all the evil in the world. 1 Timothy 6 verses 10 through 11 says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. How many televangelists, preachers, and ministries fell into false doctrine chasing the dollar? Too many for us to detail here. To save us from this calamity, Yeshua puts forth a radically different stance on material wealth. He says in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 20 and 24, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve both God and mammon. We can picture the contrast between the two approaches to money as a woman fleeing from an abuser into the arms of a lover. We are escaping the love of money with its universal evils into the righteousness, holiness, and peace that comes from loving God with our money. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 verses 10 through 11, For the love of money is the root of all evil. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, 
Patience, meekness. It is after we give up the one that we gain access to the other, and it is after we forsake the one that we can pursue the other. Money by itself is not evil. It is only a tool that can be utilized for evil or good. God wants us to use this tool for His glory, and He shows us how in a simple, quick, three-step program found in Proverbs 6, verses 6-8, through 8, New International Version, Proverbs 21, verse 26, and 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. Step 1. Have a savings account for emergencies. Proverbs 6, verses 6-8. through 8. Go to the ant. It stores provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. Step 2. Pay monthly bills. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. But if any provide not for his own, and specially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Step 3. Give whatever else your family does not need away. Proverbs 21, verse 26. The righteous giveth and spareth not. Step 3 is probably the hardest for many believers to comply with, as it requires giving the other master away. But if God were our master, we would give it away freely. This spirit of open-handedness was how Christ managed his money. In fact, his entire financial plan during his three-and-a-half-year ministry is found in John 13, verses 27-29. through 29. And after the sop, Satan entered him. Then said Yeshua unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Yeshua said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Buy those things we have need of, give something to the poor. Why would the disciples think this was what Yeshua sent Judas Iscariot out to do? Because for three and a half years, that was all they saw Yeshua do with the money they were given. Example 3. Dorcas. Acts 9, verse 36. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. The third way we keep our conscience clear is to be devoted to doing good works. This is one of the ways we know we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 10 verse 38. When we are focused on doing good, there is no room for us to do evil. And if we avoid evil, our consciences will be clear. Paul says in Titus 3, verse 8 and verse 14, This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men, and let ours learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. When we are not actively expressing our faith by loving others, Galatians 5 verse 6, and doing good to them, we become unfruitful. Unfruitfulness always leads to temptation as the world, the flesh, and the devil seek to fill the void of time created by our lack of focus on Christ. We become increasingly careless with sin until we fall into it, and then we try to do good works to make it up to God. At that point, it is too late. When we are devoting ourselves to bearing good fruit, we must always be careful to not be weary in well-doing. Galatians 6 verse 9. Getting tired of doing good is a very real problem we face. 
After doing good for so long, we either feel as if our works give us permission to dabble in sin, or we feel that our efforts are in vain because we do not see any results. To address these feelings, God first encourages us in Galatians 6 verse 9 to not give up, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Seeing results takes time, and though the work may be wearisome, we cannot give up. To encourage us further, God offers us the promise of a meeting with Him while we are doing good. Isaiah 64 verse 5 says, Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness, those that remember thee in thy ways. If we press on in our good works, we will win a meeting with God while we do them. God further motivates us by never letting us rest in the faded glory of our past works. Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 13 through 14, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Yeshua. We quote this verse thinking Paul is speaking of how we are to view our salvation. And while this does apply, that is not what Paul means in the context of this verse. When we review Philippians 3, verses 13 through 14, by first reading verses 3 through 7, we understand that what Paul is speaking of is his past accomplishments that he forgot, considering the distance he still must go to reach the perfection of Christ. We must have the same attitude. We can imagine our Christian walk as a mountain with Christ at the apex. As we are climbing higher and higher, we do not look back to see how far we have come because we have not reached the top. The goal of our salvation is to reach the high standard of the life of Christ. And until we have achieved it, we have not reached our goal. Therefore, we have nothing to boast about concerning our accomplishments, as no one imitates Christ perfectly. We are all at different points of the same mountain pressing upward. Example 4. Anna the Prophetess. Luke 2, verses 36-37. And there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Aser. She was of a great age, and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. The fourth way to keep our conscience clear is to always maintain constant communication with God in prayer. The Bible commands us in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, to pray without ceasing. Anna was faithful to this commandment, communicating with God day and night on behalf of herself and others. Her prayers were so effective and her anointing so powerful that when she came into the temple with Joseph, Mary, and baby Yeshua, she recognized Yeshua as the Christ and preached to everyone around about His redemption. Luke 2, verses 36 through 38. One of the strategies she used to make her prayers so effective was fasting. The word fasting used in Luke 2, verse 37, is nestia, which means abstinence from food. Strong's Concordance Lexicon G3521, nestia. Many believers understand fasting to be a diet where they can eat certain foods and abstain from others. Example, the so-called Daniel fast. But abstinence from food altogether is the understanding of the term. Fasting is powerful because it quiets our souls so we can hear from God, and it humbles our souls so we can speak to Him. Psalm 35, verse 13.
No one can come into God's presence with a proud attitude. Psalm 5, verse 5, New International Version. Therefore, we need to fast periodically to humble ourselves before God and reopen the channels of communication. Prayer to God is also how we order the priorities of our lives. Since our lives are not our own, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20, we do not pray seeking our will, but God's will. The best prayer in Scripture for this purpose is the prayer Christ taught his disciples in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. In this prayer, he gave them words to speak, but more importantly, he showed them how their life conversation should be with God. Let us conduct a verse by verse review of this prayer. Matthew 6, verse 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The priority of any believer is to hallow the name of Yahweh. To hallow his name means to exalt it as holy and separate it from anything impure. Strong's Concordance Lexicon, G37. Hagaizo, for the meaning of hallow. The only way we can accomplish this is to subject every area of our lives to his authority. His authority is what keeps his children who carry his name from defiling it. Matthew 6, verse 10. Thy kingdom come. After voluntary subjection to his authority, there is a kingdom. There is no kingdom without authority or subjects, and there can be no kingdom in our lives if he is not the authority and we are not his subjects. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Romans 14, verse 17. Matthew 6, verse 10b. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. With the Holy Spirit responding to our submission, we can then do the will of God perfectly with our lives because He is working in our minds the mind of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17-18 through and Philippians 6, verse 13. In heaven, the angels do the will of God perfectly through their perfect nature. On earth, we do the will of God perfectly through the mind of Christ. Matthew 6, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. With the righteousness of the Spirit of Christ active in my life, God will provide for my daily needs. For David says in Psalm 37, verse 25, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Only those walking in the righteousness of Christ have this guarantee. Our daily bread is a picture of how God provides us with employment and educational opportunities that allow us to provide for our families. He even breathes His grace on these opportunities, so they are far more beneficial to us than they naturally would have been. Matthew 6, verse 12, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. These two are always linked. If we offend our brother, then we have offended God. And if we do not forgive our brother, we will not be forgiven by God. Matthew 6, verses 14 through 15. Our forgiving offenses is the condition of receiving the promise often quoted in 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Unfortunately, many believers are confessing their sins to God and not being forgiven, and thus not experiencing cleansing because they have not forgiven their brother. 
Our priority in any relationship is to forgive the imperfections of our offenders. Matthew 6, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We can understand this verse to be a concluding promise of what God will do for us if we obey the commands of verses 9 through 12. First, I submit, and the kingdom of God establishes itself in my life. Next, the power of the Holy Spirit works in me the mind of Christ. Then, I become a body that glorifies God forever. The promise for this type of believer is that God will never lead them into temptation and will always deliver them from evil. 2 Timothy 4 verses 16 through 18. This promise does not mean we will not suffer or that we will not face temptation. What it does mean is when we suffer, we will count it all joy. James 1 verse 2. And when we face temptation, a way to escape will be made. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. With these truths in mind, let us keep our consciences clear by imitating the lives of our four examples.